Hey, welcome to the Gentle Rebel podcast, where we talk about navigating life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Mort, I'm a songwriter and creativity coach, and I love exploring the power that gentleness can have in changing our world from the inside out. So there's a lot of stuff out there about the best way to build, change, uh, create, sustain, nurture habits. And I don't want to just uh, attempt to regurgitate what other people have spent years studying and communicating with uh, uh, an increased clarity and focus over time. But in this episode, instead, I want to talk about habits through a particular lens of uh, gentleness and uh, deep sensitivity as well. And I want to explore how taking habits seriously can really help us build a more sustainable relationship with our natural uh, compassion, inherent sensitivity and uh, desire for gentleness. And also look at some of the challenges that we might face when it comes to identifying and maintaining habits that we want to build in and around our lives. We talked about this uh, recently in a Haven Cotter session where we looked at the idea of tiny habits and in particular using what BJ Fogg, the author of the book Tiny Habits, calls shine. Um, to reinforce a sense of joy at the heart of uh, what it is that we want to change in our lives, rather than kind of taking this approach around uh, a sense of punishment, obligation or shame. During June, we explore topics under the theme of tranquility inside the haven. So this is uh, this this topic came underneath that umbrella. And tranquility, as I define it, emerges when we develop conditions uh, such as environments, Uh, routines and boundaries to give rise to uh, essentially more of what we want life to look and feel and smell and taste and sound like. Habits are a big part of this. You know, habits are automatic behaviours triggered by situational cues. They're things that we do with little or no conscious thought. They are highly influenceable. And while we have millions of habits that we do without thinking, we can actually get involved in the process and recognise which habits are maybe not serving our broader uh, goals and our intentions and our visions um, and what could help instead the things that we want to put in place uh, rather than those things that are not necessarily serving um, the the vision that we have for our lives in different uh, areas. Habits are the rocks we use to build our lives around. Uh, what matters most. You know, this is actually a neutral thing if we think of what matters most as being a a kind of non-judgmental observation from the perspective that the things that we do most, the things that we constantly return to are the things that that matter most in a weird way by virtue of the fact that they are what we prioritise. If we want to build a life uh, on on a more kind of meaningful and compelling, uh, personally compelling foundation, um, around our, our true sort of values, our intentional values, we've got to recognise what we want to matter most and then begin to direct our habits in the direction of those things that we, we choose to matter most uh, instead of the things that kind of matter most by default of the fact that they're the sort of the path of least resistance, I suppose. We spoke last time about the image of driving along a road and and when we focus our gaze on an obstacle that we want to avoid being drawn towards, that we want to avoid hitting, we're actually more likely to move towards it and hit it. This resonates with habits too. You know, when we focus on what we do want and the habit that we want to encourage ourselves to develop, we're much more likely to change things for the better. 
and to replace the habits that we want to eliminate rather than, you know, if we have our eyes set firm on stopping the unfavorable habit and, and eliminating it directly, we simply spend all our time thinking about it um, and are less likely to actually change it for the better. Um, or we'll simply replace it with something similar that, that fits in uh, to the same mold. Um, and it's like, uh, so this story that I shared, uh, or a little joke, I suppose, I shared in uh, my notes from a slow coach that I send out to my mailing list um, every week or so. So there's this child who's really irritating and distracting their teacher by drumming their fingers on the table. The teacher turns and says to the child calmly, I need to be able to speak to the class. And I find it really quite distracting when you're drumming your fingers on the table. Would you be willing to stop doing that? The child agrees to stop, apologizes. Um, and then within a minute, a similar sound fills the classroom. The teacher turns around angrily. What did I just say? You haven't even gone 30 seconds before starting again. Starting what? The child replies, surprised and with complete sincerity. Ah, you thought I was drumming with my fingers on the table like before. No, I did what you asked. I found these pens to drum with instead. I think our minds are like this. When we focus on what we want to stop, they search for ways around it, like loopholes to exploit. But if we focus on what we do want with a clear and positively stated request, we're less likely to say things like, um, right, I need to stop eating so many burgers. Okay, uh, I'll eat pizza instead. Uh, because our negative demands are almost always focused on a symptom rather than the underlying need or desire. And our minds are able to just kind of uh, substitute out one symptom for another, uh, not in a deliberately undermining way. We just search for different ways to solve the problem. And if we think, okay, this, we don't want to do this one anymore. This isn't working. We just find something similar to put in place. When I first started training as a coach, I noticed how much of my mindset and my language had this, uh, this angle, this approach to it. And it was kind of enlightening to begin untangling habitual patterns and assumptions when it came to approaching change and allowing myself to think of what I wanted rather than what I didn't want. And in the years since, I've seen this over and over um, I've become more aware of it myself and I see it in people that I work with, you know, these messages that we've been trained and conditioned to adopt and to believe, which invariably have us going around in circles, you know, beating ourselves up, reinforcing negative messages about ourselves, because um, all we end up doing is is kind of tapping our pen, uh, or t- drumming with our pen instead of drumming with our, our fingers. But instead of beating myself up and telling myself, okay, stop eating junk food. It's really terrible for you. It's making you like feel awful. What if I said to myself, I want to honor my need for good health and well-being, and I'm on an adventure to find uh, healthy foods that I enjoy. And I want to notice what makes me feel good in myself. What I've come to really experience and observe in my own life is that when I positively and gently state my desires like this, there is actually room to absorb those things that uh, we might be tempted to just see as the problem in the first place, which are actually the the symptoms like, uh, you know, the burger, for example, stop eating burgers and everything will be okay. And actually, if we, if we positively and gently kind of come at this from a place of, of wider value and, and vision, we can absorb those things. We can uh, make space for those things that um, 
actually can become a lot more enjoyable when they fit into that wider picture rather than being this sole focus of um, uh, kind of punitive action. Like we've got to get rid of that. Um, I think when talking about habits, it's useful to consider the concept of uh, the autopilot, you know, autopilot, something that is useful because it makes everyday habits and routines and actions sustainable. You know, it's great when it works because it creates freedom to focus on new and interesting things or things that uh, might be out of the ordinary while the basics are taken care of. But when it doesn't function properly uh, or effectively, it can cause creeping um, degradation to important things. It's easy to kind of slip into ruts and routines and kind of going through the motions that actually take us away from ourselves and what matters to us beyond the point that makes them healthy and helpful tracks and into unyielding rigid systems that have no room for nuance or outside possibility. And we become stuck in these, in these tracks, in these ruts, in this thinking that now this is how things are. This is what I've got to do. Um, and that can feel, um, quite oppressive at times. Autopilot isn't supposed to replace our humanity. You know, it should enhance our experience, ideally allowing our humanness to flourish in more effective and beautiful ways. We can be intentional about our habits so that they are serving those deeper visions, those values, those maps that we want to build our lives around and upon. But it doesn't take much before we get stuck in those fixed patterns of thought and an inability to identify the range of potential options that we have to pick from when it comes to changing things for the better. It takes courage to allow ourselves to acknowledge a real need or feeling beneath the surface of things, the areas that we're drifting or which are not serving our sense of what it means to be alive. We might just trudge along trying to ignore the little niggle that is gnawing away at us beneath the surface. Autopilot allows us to keep ignoring the thing because we don't have to think about what's going on. But just because we ignore something, it doesn't make it go away. And as we looked at in the episode about information and noise and the cumulative impact of unprocessed dread in our lives, this can build up and become really overwhelming over time. Habits are automatic behaviours triggered by situational cues, things that we do with little or no conscious thought. So when we engage with it, our courage can bring us face to face with the horizons of possibility. It shows us the direction that we need to move if we really want things to change in ways that are compelling and meaningful to us. It shines a light on the unhelpful Uh, habits that we might want to think about replacing and it helps us identify the actions that we could take in order to recalibrate certain areas of life. Unless we know what we want, it doesn't actually really matter what habits we build and yet so often we start with the habit and try fitting it into some kind of narrative later on. It's the same thing that we see at play. I mean, I, I guess it's influenced a lot by the world of marketing, isn't it? We're told, um, oh, you've got to use or do or follow this tool, this latest trend in order to be successful. And this kind of relies on us being unaware of what we truly want to uh, our lives to look like, where we want to go with our lives, believing instead that oh, it's, it's this thing, it's this latest fad or this fashion that's going to hold the key to helping you move closer to happiness or success or whatever it is that feels like a driver to you. It's always interesting to ask the question, you know, what does successful 
mean? It's one of the questions I, I often ask new coaching clients when I take them on. You know, what does success mean to you? Because we all measure, we all picture, we all conceptualize success in different ways. It's not always easy to get straight to our own conception of success or our own in response to that question. It might take uh, a few, you know, bites at the cherry to repeat the question when responses come back to us or through us as, you know, either somebody else's definition or a, a very generic response that doesn't actually really mean anything. Um, but yeah, what does success look like to you? What would success feel like when it comes to changing this habit? How would you know if this particular campaign has succeeded? As I say, it can take a bit of time to really unpick and peel back the layers of voices before we get to our own here. We have been, you know, we are swimming in cultural assumptions and judgments and values about these things. It might start with a sense of people pleasing or appeasing, you know, success is uh, fitting in or looking the part or proving somebody else wrong. But what does it feel like? What does it look like? What does it sound like to you? What does a su- successful day feel like? What makes a successful week for you? What, like when you look back on last year or forward to next year, how do you conceptualize and measure its success? Do you resonate with that concept, with that measurement that you've just stated? Does that actually connect with you at any level? Or does it belong somewhere or to someone else? Only when we know what we're aiming to do, do we know what strategy is going to be the most useful to get there. Otherwise, we're just at the mercy of whatever shiny object we're told is the must-use thing for today. Like we bounce from one thing to the next, never ever going deep or or knowing why why this thing is the right thing for us. All we know is no, this is not the answer. I'll try something else. Gentleness as rebellion is about rooting ourselves in a deeper sense of vision, and this cannot be done at speed. It requires us to slow down to observe what we're feeling and then recognize habits as things that we can build from the inside out that help us to keep circling around and moving towards the direction that we've chosen to set our sights upon. This is not to say that we need to have this perfectly articulated vision for exactly how we want life to look. (laughs) I've never had that. Um, But it's about allowing ourselves to feel at peace with the direction that we have chosen to move to like move in at any one time direction as vision might be summed up in a few words it might be ah creative practice play joy they're the things that i'm moving towards in this season of my life or i want to experience life in communion with all my senses or my vision is connection and freedom you might be able to articulate some tangible ways that your vi- your values, your vision, your needs will look um, if you could design life uh, for the next three, six, 12 months or whatever. You've got these really specific ideas of, no, this is what would be going on. Or you might just ask, you know, what does a person like that do? What does a person who lives life in a spirit of creative practice play and joy Uh, What do they do with their life? What does their life look like? What are the habits that they engage with? 
um, and you know you might consider people that you think of as being a little further down the road of whatever those aspirational uh, values are for you um, and to, to kind of think about the habits that they do that contribute to that um, and to learn and to get inspired by that. One of the things I really love about BJ Fogg's tiny habits model is how much space it gives to gentleness. Gentleness with ourselves, gentleness with the things that we want to change or develop. We often have such a, a default position of ungentleness when it comes to changing our lives. But with tiny habits, it's about this kind of small, slow, gentle approach. In other words, giving ourselves the best chance of growing our habits with deep roots and sustainable energy. Fogg says that there are three things we must do if we're going to embrace the tiny habit approach. First, stop judging yourself. (laughs) Kind of easier said than done, I think, but definitely attainable within the tiny habits framework. In fact, I, I think it's not actually a prerequisite for success as much as it's a byproduct of embracing this approach. Um, so it's kind of, it comes as a result of kind of diving into tiny habits. Secondly, take aspirations and break them into tiny behaviors. So this is one of the absolute keys to making sustainable change happen. As I just said, you know, we have to be honest about what we want and where we would love to uh, get to or the direction in which we would love to move and then break that vision or that desire those values down into really small behaviours that will kind of need to happen in order to get there or the things that would give rise to moving in that direction. Again, it's the breaking down to ridiculously small difference-making habits that can feel kind of alien to us when we're used to biting off big chunks and trying to pursue huge goals and going around in that circle of like, yeah, I failed again, beating myself up and then believing, okay, I need to do this and creating another massive goal, failing again. But actually, this is about getting as small as possible. Uh, And this is a really profoundly gentle approach to this stuff. And thirdly, embrace mistakes as discoveries and use them to move forward. This third component has gentleness baked right into the heart of it. Mistakes are not something to beat ourselves up about. They are awareness-raising discoveries that can provide clues to all manner of useful things. One of the things that uh, people talk about as an incentive often for for building a coaching partnership with me is uh, this sense of accountability. They want to to feel accountable to someone or something. Um, They feel like having someone to to answer to uh, is going to help them focus on doing what they want to do. It's going to give them that sort of that that set focus that they can follow. And this always fascinates me, especially when kind of digging into the nature of accountability for them. Does this feel like a carrot or a stick? Are they motivated by avoiding some kind of punitive moment, i.e. being told off or feeling ashamed, like I haven't done this thing, um, but I can av- avoid that by knowing that um, Andy's going to be there at the end of this week or whatever on this call and uh, I don't want to be told off by him or are they motivated by excitement to share how they're growing like ah, oh, I get to speak to Andy at the end of the week and I, I want to kind of show him how much I've done and what's going on um, it's not, obviously not always quite as clearly defined or neatly uh, delineated as that but we often fall more to one side than the other when it comes to feeling accountable when it fe- when it comes to our motivations you know are we trying to avoid getting told off or are we trying to move towards this this kind of joy piece 
And like many things, it can be a positive energizing word or it can be a negative punitive word. And there, there are crossovers within that as well. Um, but anyway, in the accountability that I love exploring, um, it's when things haven't gone to plan. I love someone, you know, coming with that, that sense of like, oh, yeah, it's not, it's not gone exactly as I hoped it would. Because there's always so much to learn and to discover when uh, what we're convinced will go a certain way doesn't turn out as we hope. Uh, and gentleness gives us the space to avoid the shame and the self-flagellation that might otherwise occur when we make mistakes. And actually, it's remembering that, you know, most of the greatest discoveries, artworks, developments made by humans have mistakes built into their core. Like they have founded around mistakes, happy accidents, discoveries, whatever you want to call them, things that didn't go to plan. Motivation is another interesting word. So it means to to stimulate something towards action. Act as the inciting cause of something. Uh, We often talk about self-motivation, don't we, when it comes to uh, habit development or making changes in our lives. In other words, relying on ourselves to compel ourselves to act in a particular desirable way. And this thinking can sometimes take us away from our building blocks of motivation, the things that that kind of uh, infuse motivation, that make motivation happen, which lay beyond the here and now. There's often a difference between our response to uh, what matters now and our response to what matters most. What matters now is an obstacle to motivation because it's anchored in making this present moment uh, maybe as easy as possible or in reacting to something that has been placed in front of us. So it then becomes sort of urgent reactivity. What matters, uh, what matters now? This is the thing that matters now. Whereas what matters most anchors our present actions within the context of something bigger, something that we have set our sights on in a, in a bigger picture. When we're connected to that big picture, we can find motivation for the small stuff because we understand how it contributes to getting to where we want to go. As we will look at shortly, uh, behavioural psychology is discovering that incentives are less powerful than rewards or what in transactional analysis is called strokes. When we keep doing what we don't want to be doing, uh, it's probably because a short-term motivation is outmuscling a long-term uh, incentive. Like if you smoke, for example, it's harder to connect to long-term health benefits of stopping right now than it is to connect to the reward of having a cigarette right now. Um, it's not enough to try pulling ourselves along with future incentives when it comes to like really powerfully motivating and uh, easy to perform actions with very strong uh, cues uh, or triggers as well. And BJ Fogg looks at the, these three components present in the formation of any habit, motivation, ability, and a prompt or trigger. So the motivation is, is the reason for doing it or a reason for doing it, uh, some kind of reward that makes the behavior attractive. Um, ability is how easy the thing is to do. Um, you, if, you, if you can't do it, then you won't. And then the prompt or the trigger is something that compels or subconsciously reminds us to act. Um, and so the fog behavioral model shows this in uh, the form of a graph which has a, I should try and describe it, but it's, a, it's got a curved action line and motivation sits on the y-axis um, and ability sits on the x-axis. And when motivation and ability are, are both high, 
the action is much more likely uh, to occur when it's prompted. And when motivation and ability are low, the action is less likely when prompted. Um, And while the curve suggests that actions can still happen if, for example, there's a high ability and a slightly lower motivation or vice versa, both of these components are necessary parts of the equation if an action is going, going to happen. And this gives us a reason for smoking being hard to stop. You know, the motivation is high. You know, it might be that it relaxes you. It gives your body um, a hit of nicotine. The ability is high. If you have access to cigarettes, you, you know, you've, you've, there's nothing sort of standing in the way of you being able to perform the action. And the prompts are everywhere. You feel stressed, you feel bored, or it's time for a break. You know, all these things that might trigger um, that, that particular action. And um, Fogg debunks the idea that has become very popular um, over, um, or it was very popular around sort of 10 years ago or so, which was that habits are simply the result of doing something, repeating something every day for 21 days or 30 days or 50 days or whatever. Um, And actually that habits can be established much more quickly uh, than that. And they can also take a lot longer than that to occur because it's not about the uh, number of days you do it for um and he points out like bad habits so-called can be developed extremely fast uh, when they're easy to do and we're highly motivated to do them he uses the example of uh, like scrolling uh, on your phone in bed which is an easy thing to do you know <laughs> especially like the apps on our phones are literally begging for us to to do that they make it as easy as possible and they also have little reward cues baked in, baked into them so that when we do it, it feels good. Or, uh, you know, we, we get all of these little reinforcing things that, that make us feel excited to do it or compelled to do it. So the motivation is high, too, because it feels good. Uh, we get to see what's going on. We get to feel connected. We get to this kind of rush from seeing, you know, or oh, who's who's engaged with that latest post or uh, whatever. Who said something outrageous? Um, and just think about the way it feels when you get the, uh, you know, there's the, you always get those green responses, don't you? And positive sounds on particular games um, when you get things right, when you succeed. And that, that always makes you feel kind of good. Or the, the notification bell lights up. You're like, oh, what's that? Oh, better go and see, what, see who's saying what. Um, and, uh, you know, these, these social media companies know this. this is why, <laughs> like, I find it fascinating on, on Twitter. Um, so I've got a couple of accounts that I don't use very often, uh, or will go. Th- I'll use them as as required, and then it will go a little bit dormant. And I find during those dormant times, I get inundated with these notifications from from Twitter. I think, oh, who's saying what? And it just turns out to be Twitter, basically uh, saying, oh, you might be missing this, or this person said this, and and it's not anything direct to me. Um, but it's just, it's almost like Twitter waving its hand saying, don't forget about me. Come on, engage. Um, and interestingly, it is, you, you do have that response to the number. You see the notification number. You think, okay, yeah, I'll go and see who's who's talking to me. Um, weirdly though, it kind of, it's like the boy who cried wolf a little bit, especially on those accounts. I know it's there. It, it becomes a, okay, I'm not going to bother looking because I know those notifications are probably not anything real. And then you sort of check a couple of months later and realize you've missed a load of important things. So, yeah, it's, I don't know. Um, 
but yeah, the, these are kind of tiny little reinforcements that bring us back, that are designed to bring us back again and again. Um, and again, it's remembering or using this as a as an awareness raiser to realise, okay, we can we can sort of do this for ourselves. We can use these mechanisms to actually make life happen in ways that we want to choose, that we want to be in charge of, rather than um, simply allowing these other these other outside forces to dictate our behaviours. I really like the idea of seeing habits as undesirable versus desirable, rather than bad versus good. You know, when we hold them to the motivating aspirations that we have, we can uh, we can make sense of this. It's like, okay, it's almost like a spectrum along which we can say, okay, yeah, that's that's feeding that aspiration. That's undesirable because that f- doesn't feed anything. That just that takes me away from um, serving that aspiration, that value, that vision that I have for my life. Uh, Maybe we can think of them as expansive versus contracting habits as well. You know, things that serve and things that don't serve, things that grow us and things that cause us to uh, maybe shrink back or wither in some way. This helps us recognize what is going on, which is not helping us get closer to where we want to go. And in the context of the FOG behavior model, we can make undesirable habits more difficult to do by making them harder to do, changing the prompt, making them less rewarding in some way. In the example of scrolling in bed, it might be to leave your phone in another room, to change uh, the morning or evening routine so that the moment that you normally uh, mindlessly pick up your phone, it's no longer there. You're sort of reaching, you're grasping for thin air. Um, Or remove certain apps from your phone so that there's actually no real pleasure from opening it. Um, If you kind of notice the, the apps that are giving you that uh, make it bringing you to that moment. Another thing that's worked well for me is frequently moving apps around on my phone so that I get I get this real moment of awareness when I mindlessly pick up my phone and open an app and I'm like, what what am I doing on this? Um, you know, because it's in the same position as the one that my finger was automatically reaching for. Um, and then it's kind of like a, a wake up and like, okay, I'm back in the room. Um, and perhaps that can serve as a prompt for a more desirable habit like, OK, right, that's, the, you know, that moment of realisation is the cue for me to put my phone down and pick up a book or have a chat with someone or do something creative, whatever. Uh, put simply, if we make the desirable habits more rewarding, um, then we can make those habits take root faster. And if we make undesirable habits less rewarding, uh, we will um, get tired of them quicker these are not sort of you know the specific ideas that i've i've just shared are not prescriptive ideas i'm not saying do these things um i think we're all in different positions what's practical for me might not be practical for you and vice versa rather this is about um identifying the principles at work here and working with them so that we open up more possibilities and potential for those outcomes that we that we want the outcomes that we desire okay let's think about a few potential things that might derail our kind of move towards desirable habits. Um, First, people. Have you seen the meme that says, um, how to kill an introvert? Starve them to death by putting a stranger in the kitchen. (laughs) I remember seeing that for the first time a bunch of years ago and feeling an immense sense of recognition. (laughs) You know, the number of times I've uh, kind of imprisoned myself in my room because it's like, I, I can hear unfamiliar voices. In, where are they? I don't. I don't even know what room they're in. They might be 
in the kitchen. They might be in the lounge. Um, I'm just going to stay here because it's it's unsafe and I'm not prepared to meet anyone new. <laughs> when I was reflecting on habits, I was reminded uh, of many times in my life that I've sacrificed a desirable uh, habit or desirable action for no reason other than there's people there's people there (laughs) there's people in that place uh like deciding uh well if i haven't been out for a run by 7 a.m uh that's that's it i'm not going running that day there's too many people out there in the world with the rest of the day i have to try again tomorrow uh as if it is impossible for me to go running at any other time and you know that's, that's sort of setting yourself up to fail in many ways I trained myself like a dog, you know, with one of those um, invisible fences where a sound's emitted when the dog reaches the, like the perimeter um, and they're, they, they're kind of trained conditioned not to go any further. Uh, afterwards, you could even take the collar off and the dog would probably still stay within that area. I'm like that sometimes. Um, I don't know about you. Uh, it, it doesn't occur to me that actually I could do the thing that I want to do um, outside of the fenced area. And if it really matters to me, um, then why, why wouldn't I? Uh, and I often do this now, you know, if I recognize one of those limits that I've placed on myself, I, I'm like, right, I'm going to just tackle this and lean into it, see what happens. Um, and more often than not, it opens up a little, a new little room of possibility. Like, uh, oh, if I miss the morning running window, I can go later in the day. And shokara, I don't die. Cool. And I can go into the kitchen and grab what I need. Even if there's a stranger in there, I can say hello to them and just excuse myself without dying. Cool. There's also the people-pleasing aspect that can stop us from developing desirable habits um, as well. You know, perhaps it's accepting undesirable things because, you know, you don't want to offend someone or put someone out or whatever, um, or not wanting to be in the way not wanting a fuss made by doing something that is kind of different to what everybody else is doing. Um, There are all kinds of ways that we can sabotage desirable habits and perpetuate undesirable habits due to really the presence of people and our, uh, the the kind of nature of our relationship with their presence um, and where we kind of position ourselves in relation to other people. Gentle habit formation requires us to own the space that we take up and own the space that we need to grow to stop judging or comparing ourselves with others and to focus on the true uh, motivations for our actions, the true things that are kind of driving us beneath the surface, which means doing what matters most, you know, moving in that chosen direction rather than doing what matters now, avoiding other people. Uh, And yes, I am very aware it's easier said than done a lot of the time. Another thing that can derail us from desirable habits are distractions and rabbit holes. Now, I can get into creative flow really quite easily, and I'm very grateful for that. I can lose myself in my work. But what, my, what matters most to me is the sustainable and gradual growth of a variety of component parts of my life and my business over time. And I can get completely consumed in a little project that I find very difficult to, to sort of pull myself out of which is not generally conducive to sustainable habit creation. And not only does it take away from other desirable habits and from that, that kind of what matters most thing, but it can also make a desirable thing feel overwhelming and unhealthy. You know, if I think the only way to move forwards with something is to dive all in and do, some, do that at the expense of everything else, 
then I end up developing a very lopsided, well, a lopsided life and a lopsided view of uh, of how things need to happen. Um, it's like the story I shared um, uh, a few weeks ago on in the Notes from a Slow Coach newsletter about um, the person wandering on a hot day and after a while they get overcome by thirst and begin following this mirage up ahead as if it's real and then quite by chance their pursuit leads them to a a genuine riverbank that's flowing with fresh water and by this point they're more thirsty than ever but without taking a single sip they just stand there looking at the river and a bystander notices the wanderer on the riverbank and says you you look incredibly thirsty and yet you're just standing there without taking a drink. What's going on? The wanderer replies, I am, yeah, I'm so, so thirsty. But we've seen this. Look at, the, look at this river. There is far too much water in there. How could I possibly finish it all? And this speaks to my experience. If, if I believe I have to drink the whole river in order to quench my thirst, then I'm going to die of dehydration, despite the fact that there's this abundant amount of water right in front of me um, and that's how it can feel sometimes when the uh, all-consuming habit of diving into projects or diving uh, all into even just small things um, can then create this this sense that well no if I if I address that if I uh, knock that off my to-do list that's going to take me like two days to uh, book a dentist appointment or whatever um, and that can really sort of overwhelm us over time. We can also get derailed from developing and nurturing desirable habits when we lose our connection with our why, that deeper motivation that we've uh, talked about already. You know, if we're not personally motivated or compelled towards particular uh, actions or habits, we might quickly lose interest in them. This can also tell us important things such as whether or not the habit is really desirable or whether we're doing it because, you know, we maybe feel we should like it's about examining, okay, where did our initial motivation come from for this? What do we gain from doing this thing? What's it costing us? What's it meaning we're not able to do? And then there's our uh, tendency to look at the symptom and not the cause. When an undesirable habit seems impossible to shift, it's worth examining it as a symptom rather than as uh, a problem in itself, as a cause of things. Think about the point at which the habit happens as a result of things further up the river or back along the chain. This is what we're talking about when it comes to the ability and prompt part of that habit triad. If the phone is on the bedside table at night or in the morning, then it's expecting a lot of you to to stop your scrolling habit if that's an ingrained behaviour. That's more of a symptom of a chain of events. You know, if an earlier series of habits results in the phone being left in another room, then the undesirable habit of scrolling is going to suddenly become a whole lot harder. It would take more effort and require a much higher degree of uh, motivation as well to to go to find your phone, to get it from wherever it is, uh, rather than sort of just sort of lying in bed. Um, And so it can be useful to step back and to look at where habits sit in the overall uh, stack of actions and prompts. One thing leads to another. Before you know it, you're doing the, the, the very thing that you don't want to be doing again. But by the time you get to the thing itself, it's almost impossible to stop yourself. And so it's putting this unnecessarily high level of self-blame and shame on yourself as well. If you think this is the moment where the, the habit is, is formed, this is the time I ought to be saying no. And it's like, 
you know, I often talk about creating the conditions for the desirable thing to become the simple thing. And that's what this is about. It's identifying, okay, what's led to this point where my phone is there and I'm having to like use willpower to stop myself from doing this thing. What could I do instead? Where could I travel to in this habit chain in order to make this not the thing that um, happens? So make the undesirable thing the hard thing and the desirable thing the simple thing. Another aspect that can leave us disconnected from what we believe to be desirable habits is a tendency to hold on to other people's routines and habits as desirable, as the key to our success. You know, I, I, I don't know if it still happens, but for a while um, I was inundated with uh, seeing that there was this kind of trend in the online world of, of seeing people sharing their morning routines and this kind of sense of like, you've got to copy this like this is it, it might still go on and i might not just not be following those kinds of people right now but i remember you know people would often say like i'm successful because i wake up at four o'clock in the morning i do all this writing i, I work out i do everything all of these things before breakfast here's here's a breakdown of my routine just follow this if you want to be successful <laughs> and we might kind of look for blueprints from other people that give us an easy to follow formula for success but this is magical thinking. It's like believing if we had the same trumpet as Miles Davis, we'd be able to just play it like him. Um, it ignores the fact that the routine is like usually a, it's a place that the individual has reached through iterating around their own uh, natural ways of operating, their own aspirations. They've found those those habits that that work for them, the actions that that make sense to them specifically in serving their desirable outcome. There's nothing wrong with getting inspired by what other people do and use those to uh, inform us with ideas that we can experiment with, that we can test out. But it's very different from believing that, okay, that's the key. If only I did exactly what they do, then I would have the same life as them. Um, and, you know, we, I, th- I think we all know that's completely not true in any way, but we still fall into that magical thinking. I think the worst culprits are often the successful people themselves, <laughs> the people that believe their own hype. They might be sort of have these blind spots to the messy and confusing work that, that goes on beneath the surface of their own life. I think we're, we often are. We're oblivious to those things often for ourselves. Um, and so we, we kind of simplify things. We boil them down to, okay, this, this is what I do. Therefore, this is all that matters. Um, and either they don't recognize what has actually gone on or they're like, well, that if I if I tell the truth, it's really difficult to package and sell, isn't it? <laughs> um, you know, it's easier to sell a specific blueprint than the truth, which is that we all need to craft things in bespoke and unique and chaotic and confusing ways that fit who we are, what we value and where we are in life right now as well. And the final thing I want to mention that can derail us is the use of labels when it comes to becoming more of what we want to be. I think this kind of links to imposter syndrome and a lot of self-doubt can kick in. If you want to um, maybe develop a habit of writing more or you want to run or you want to do more creativity, start a business, meditate, whatever, you know, hearing someone maybe describe you as, um, oh, they're, they're, they're a writer, they're a runner, they're a creative, they're an entrepreneur, whatever it is, that can feel kind of scary. <laughs> it can feel like a, a big burden to carry. And the whole comparison thing might kick in and make us feel weird about the pursuits that that we're enjoying, that we're sort of embarking on just out of curiosity and passion. And I find it can sometimes be helpful to break this down into the language of habits. 
So we detach all judgment language from it uh, or qualifying criteria. You know, it doesn't matter what you've done or how good people might say you are. In simple terms, a writer is a person who's in the habit of writing. A hard worker is someone who's in the habit of working hard. A waiter is someone who, you know, works in a restaurant or a cafe. A musician is someone in the habit of playing music or writing music or whatever. And this can be really empowering if we feel unworthy of doing something because it gives us very simple objective steps to take. You know, it takes the value judgment out of it. When it comes to imposter syndrome, I think this, it can be really helpful to, to deal only in facts, to like be very, um, very much in the observer model where you say, this is what is happening. Um, I am writing. I, I write every day. Like that's my habit. You might call me a writer but I'm just someone in the habit of writing and sort of taking the identity part away from it. I think that can be a a scary thing at times or an overwhelming thing. And it can invite all that, all that judgment, all that comparison that then leads, leaves us feeling um, sort of unworthy or less than uh, capable when we compare ourselves to other people. BJ Fogg talks about helping ourselves feel successful rather than helping ourselves be successful as a core part of the tiny habits approach. And there's some really fascinating stuff in this part of the book uh, where he writes, in English, we do not have a perfect word to describe the positive feeling we get from experiencing success. I've read piles of scientific literature on related topics, and I've done my own research in this area, and I'm convinced that we're lacking a good word. The closest label is authentic pride, but that's not an exact match. So with the encouragement of three of the world's experts on human emotion, I decided to create a new word for this feeling of success, shine. There's a difference between incentives and rewards. So this is something I touched on earlier. I think it's really insightful and important as a thing to emphasize. Uh, So Fogg uh, says that many so-called habit experts have pumped up the idea of motivating a new habit with a reward. As with many words that have migrated from academia to pop science, the meaning of reward has become muddied to the point of being unhelpful in some cases and downright misleading in others. Let's say that you've committed to running every day for two weeks, and at the end of those two weeks, you reward yourself with a massage. I would say, good for you, because we could all benefit from more massages. But I would also say that your massage wasn't a reward, it was an incentive. Incentives like a sales bonus or a monthly massage, can motivate you, but they don't rewire your brain. Incentives are way too far in the future to give you that all-important shot of dopamine that encodes the new habit. A real reward, something that will actually create a habit, is a much narrower target to hit than most people think. And so um, he points out that the official meaning of reward as it applies to habit formation is uh, a kind of celebration that comes immediately Um, or is immediately linked or linked immediately to uh, a habit. And he says there are three moments for celebration when establishing a new habit. There's the moment you remember to do your new habit. There's while you're doing your new habit. And there's the moment immediately after doing your new habit. And so, yeah, in our Haven conversation um, about this, this topic, we had a really interesting chat about how difficult this can be at times, you know, to celebrate, to embrace this idea of, you know, what does it mean to celebrate? And I think most of us are trained also to think of rewards as incentives, like we might do with a child who, you know, we really want them to do something. So we might say, okay, 
do this and uh, you'll get an ice cream later or whatever. Or with the person who wants to stop smoking, to say stop smoking now, you'll feel healthier in two weeks. It's not going to be a reward. Um, The important part is what Fogg says about rewiring your brain. It's not about manipulating or incentivizing, but rather doing the under the surface stuff, which is where the idea of shine comes in which is a word I really like. I, I, it kind of resonates. I get it. Um, he says, you know this feeling already. You feel shine when you ace an exam. You feel shine when you give a great presentation and people clap at the end. You feel shine when you smell something delicious that you've cooked for the first time. By skillfully celebrating, you create a feeling of shine, which in turn causes your brain to encode the new habit. So what does shine feel like to you? Can you think of how it appears in your life maybe a particular experience comes to mind the feeling you get after a particularly satisfying experience we can break down desirable habits and imagine or envisage the points that feel good within them you know i thought of a few like when i reach inbox zero when i'm processing my emails i get this big feeling of satisfaction this outbreath where i'm just able to relax um And along the way, as I reply to each email, as I drop each email that I've processed into its like correct folder, I have this kind of mini smile, this, this thing that happens when I see the inbox shrink. About seven years ago, I started a habit of drinking four glasses of water every morning before uh, doing anything else. And I'd kind of picture it filling my body and allowing new seeds to start blooming Uh, I could almost feel it revitalizing me from the inside out and that felt really good and there was a definite sense of shine in that first glass and in the fourth glass when I put it down and feel you know hydrated as I start the day I just feel this sense of like yes I'm full I'm renewed Um, and I, I do this without thinking now every day after a run You know, that feeling of deep relief when I get back to the door. A huge sigh, a little mini fist pump of satisfaction has wired into my brain this connection that kind of also joins me on familiar routes. You know, when I get from one place to the next, I say, okay, I'm going to get to there without stopping. And when I get there, it's like, yes. Um, Just all these just mini reinforcements of the feeling of success. And finally, journaling. Um, You know, there's been two things for me in the 10 years since I started journaling every day uh, is seeing my streak on the sidebar of the day one app and getting this deep satisfaction from watching that grow watching the number of entries and just feeling this sense of like this building this this body of uh, of of journal entries that kind of mean a lot to me and also the physical act of shutting the laptop when I've finished writing and it just feels like Ah, yeah, I've got that out. That's a and just a really satisfying moment. And Fogg talks about his own little celebrations when establishing things like his flossing one tooth habit and doing one push up every time he goes to the bathroom. A little celebration when remembering to do it while doing it and having done it brings these connections, wires in this this habit. In our conversation in the haven we spoke about how sometimes it's hard to allow ourselves to celebrate it feels kind of weird or it maybe even feels like boasting <laughs> um and but it, it doesn't need to be a big bold expression that is alien to us in fact it's about doing what comes naturally and there's this is what i really like like bj fogg offers three examples to help us kind of think about okay what our natural forms of celebrating might be and he says okay take this first scenario 
you decide to apply for your dream job with a company you love. You make it through the process all the way to the final interview. The hiring manager says, we'll send you an email with our decision. The next morning, the manager's email is waiting for you. You open it and the first word you read is congratulations. What do you do at that moment? Second scenario, picture yourself sitting in your office. You have a piece of paper to recycle and the recycling bin is in the far corner of the room. You decide to wad up the paper and throw it into the bin. You're not sure you're going to make it. You aim carefully, you toss the paper, up it goes into an arc. As it comes down, the wad of paper vanishes into the bin. Perfect shot. (laughs) What do you do at that moment? Or the third scenario, your favourite sports team is in the championship game. The score is tied, very little time remains. As the time on the clock runs out, your team scores, winning the championship. What do you do at that moment? These responses show us what we do kind of instinctively when we feel good about something. What are some of the ways that you celebrate during these sorts of moments or other moments, things that are more maybe compelling or meaningful to you? When you, I don't know, find the perfect gift to give to someone. Uh, When you just get an unexpected pleasant surprise, whatever it might be. These are the things that we can sort of bake into and infuse those habits that we're trying to build uh, with and, and just use them to reinforce the feeling of shine, the feeling successful as we go. We also looked at a blog post on the website Focus to Evolve, which talks about kind of infusing joy into um, the everyday chores of life, you know, stacking joy into things that we might not otherwise particularly feel compelled towards doing or enjoy doing. This is not the same as celebration, but we realised that there's something nice about injecting enjoyable aspects into habits to make them more appealing. Uh, You know, we talked about, you know, listening to podcasts, um, bringing cake (laughs) into the thing, uh, it having a social aspect where we get to sort of spend time with people that we Uh, want to spend time with. And what I really like about this, it makes the habit part of life rather than something we're doing uh, for the future or in service of something beyond this moment. Um, Exercise that feels joyful now is easier to maintain than exercise you do for this abstract stranger who is your future self. You know, that, that thing down the line that we talked about with the smoking. It's like, actually, if we can bring ourselves into the the joy of this thing right now, if we can stack joy into these these habits that we want to um, instill, then it makes it much uh, easier to maintain. And the article says, joy stacking can turn a task that I don't want to do into a cherished routine. For example, I used to think that exercise had to be hard and awful in order to be effective. But last year, at the start of the pandemic, I decided that my exercise for the day would be long walks, since walking is a joyful way that I move my body. I then decided that those walks would be outside throughout my neighbourhood, since being outside is another joy of mine. I added educational and inspirational podcasts as a soundtrack to my walks, a third rock in my joy stacking. I kept my eyes open for beauty around my neighbourhood and started taking pictures of those beautiful objects, flowers, sunrises, trees, etc a fourth rock in my joy stacking. I made a rule for myself that if I walked by anyone, I would smile and say hi, a fifth rock in my joy stacking. Because of all the joys that I baked into moving my body, exercise became and remains a joy. 
So yeah, I mean, like what could you stack some joy into right now? Is there something that you're finding particularly difficult, um, which might benefit from this sort of approach? Like just allowing, I think so often we, we sort of build life around these things that we think should be miserable or should be awful in order to be effective. Um, but what if we found ways to, to bring lots of the things that we enjoy into them? Uh, the article goes on to say, cleaning my house is also not a particularly joyful time for most people. Um, <laughs> I just realised that doesn't really make much sense. Cleaning cleaning the house is also not a particularly joyful time for most people. But playing music and having cold uh, water waiting for me in the refrigerator are some of the ways that I stack my joys in order to make cleaning time something to look forward to. Um, and yeah, I, when I think about times of great habit shifts for me they've always been infused with these little joys like a cup of coffee um listening to some music the environment you know whatever it is they're about what happens within the habit rather than afterwards as well you know i know exercise is feeding my aspiration for health and well-being i know i will feel better after exercise but that's not enough to make me exercise uh, you know if i've got a great audiobook on the go the idea of listening to it while running is often like it compels me, it motivates me to go. Yeah, and so if we kind of mix these, you know, ways of designing habits, the the infusing of joy, the stacking of joy into them with those celebrations that we've talked about, those little moments of, yes, I've remembered to do this. Yeah, I'm doing it. Or, yeah, that's really satisfying. I'm so glad I've done that. It feels quite exciting to actually get behind the wheel and start designing some of these things. I don't know how it feels for you. But I hope this has been a gentle and expansive exploration of habits and that you're feeling kind of curiously excited about the possibility of experimenting with this stuff. I believe gentleness has an integral part to play in building meaningful, rooted, steady behaviours, actions, habits, shifts in and around our lives. You know, it's about creating these conditions for things to grow organically and intentionally. It's a journey focused process where we celebrate what we are uh, doing, not what got done as a result because personal growth is a byproduct of small shifts over time in the direction of what we want more of in our lives when we get out of our own way when we stop judging ourselves and overthinking when we take aspirations and break them right down into these tiny actions and when we embrace mistakes as discoveries which we can actually use to help us move forwards does any of what we've been talking about today resonate with you i'd love to hear your experience with kind of developing habits and making intentional changes in meaningful directions. Uh, come and leave a comment on the website or send me an email through the contact form. Um, and yeah, it'd be really, really lovely to, to hear from you around this stuff. Okay, I think that will do us for this episode. I will speak to you again uh, very soon. Just one more thing quickly before we finish. Because you're listening to this, I imagine you are a reflective person with a caring, creative and compassionate spirit. And I want to just quickly tell you about The Haven, which is a virtual village for quietly creative misfits just like you. Whether you're looking to build lasting friendships with other gently unconventional people or you simply need some respite from the world's noise right now, I've built The Haven for you. With its cafe, theatre, library and fireside, it's a calm bubble of support and encouragement for gentle rebels. 
It's currently the autumn season in the membership and we're looking at the themes of change, belonging and serenity during September, October and November. Through our conversations in the community as well as resources like the private podcast feed, videos, interviews and short courses, we dive into these themes and ask how we can build healthier, happier and more connected lives in sync with our natural, gentle rhythms. Perhaps you know intuitively that there's so much more within you waiting to burst into life but maybe you don't quite know where to start or how to bring it out in a way that feels good to you. Well, I'd love to welcome you in and show you around The Haven. You can learn more at the-haven.co or you'll find a link in the description for this episode. Take care. Bye-bye.